0: Welcome to SoundLore, the official podcast of Indiana University's Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, where we talk about recent scholarship, ideas, current happenings, and many other interesting tidbits. I'm Amanda Luke.
1: And I'm David McDonald. On today's episode of SoundLore, Amanda speaks with Dr. Julianne Graper, who is Visiting Assistant Professor in Ethnomusicology here at Indiana University Bloomington. Dr. Graper completed her PhD at the University of Texas at Austin with a multi-species ethnographic project on bat-human interactions in Central Texas and Southern Mexico. Today, she and Amanda discuss ethnographic methodologies that seek to decenter the human as described in her 2019 article, Bat City, Becoming with Bats in the Austin Music Scene, published in Music Cultures.
0: I'm Amanda Luke, host of SoundLore and a PhD student here at IU in Ethnomusicology. I'm Julianne Graper, a visiting assistant professor also here at IU. So in our conversation today, which I'm really excited about, we're kind of building on and expanding from the talk you gave for the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology's colloquium series. I'm hoping to ask a few questions of my own that I saved from the Q&A and also broaden it out a little bit further to discuss post-humanism as something I'm not super familiar with. As well as uh, some other subfields that focus on decentering the human, as well as a lot of conversations about bats, yeah. which I'm excited to get around to. So, I know you've talked about bats and the Austin music scene a lot in your writing. And I wonder if you could tell our listeners a bit about how bats have been linked with the Austin music scene.
2: Yeah. So, that was um, that parallel was one of the key arguments that I made in my dissertation and also in the music cultures article that. Um, came from that a little bit afterward, Um, and it was mostly derived from things that I was observing in Austin while I was living there, so um, during my PhD program. So I came across a lot of really interesting cultural depictions that sort of conflated Austin's reputation as the live music capital of the world with its reputation as the Bat City. So things like their images of um, bats wearing headphones or playing guitars or things like that. And there's one that I think is really, really indicative of kind of the dynamic that I'm talking about. And it was um, a cardboard cutout at the downtown Trader Joe. So it was one of those where it's got a hole and you like put your face in it so that you Mm -hmm. become one of the characters. And it had four animals, which are all kind of representative of Austin. And they were all dressed up like the different members of a band. So there was a bat playing a guitar and there was... Uh, I think the armadillo was on drums, there was a grackle, and also a dog, and I forget forget which instrument which went went with which animal, but these are kind of really emblematic animals of Austin um, represented as musicians in a rock band, and then on top of that, you as a person physically in Austin literally insert yourself into, you know, these two kind of Uh, markers of Austin identity. So I think that is kind of really telling of um, a dynamic that I was observing while I was there. Um, And there were tons and tons of examples of similar things. Um, And then as a part of my research, I started looking back a little bit further into the history of these two two different ways of thinking about uh, being from Austin. And I found that there's kind of an interesting confluence in which they emerged pretty much at the same time in the 1980s, just as Austin was opening itself up to um, the broader world um, in order to market itself for tourism basically. Um, so I think I'm not, you know, I'm not really trying to make a claim that you know, bats themselves directly contributed to the rise of the Austin music scene or anything like that. But I think there is a really interesting parallel in these two discourses of the city as a bat city and a live music city that result um, in part just from a really convenient timing um, and in part from these uh, deliberate efforts by people in local government to market Austin in particular ways to the broader community.
0: Mm -hmm. There's a a couple things that caught my attention when you were just saying. I'm really surprised that something so, I guess, iconic of the city showed up at a Trader Joe's. Yeah, the Trader Joe's, it's
2: an interesting place. I I was living in Wisconsin right before I moved here and I was like, I have to find out if they did the same thing, if there's all these like Wisconsin symbols. And they had some of them. So there was a few things that was like Wisconsin football or whatever, you know, painted Mm -hmm. around the Trader Joe's. But then they also had some really generic ones. So like in Austin, in addition to this cardboard cutout, there's also like a picture of a bat that's like, oh, hello kids, I will lead you around the grocery store and you can look for me, whatever. And I was like, I wonder what the one is gonna be in Madison, Wisconsin. And it was a lobster, which does not make sense because there is not an ocean in Madison, Wisconsin. So I think their efforts to um, engage with the local identity vary depending on the city and maybe you know how large of a store it is and things like that. But I do think it's really interesting.
0: Yeah, that could be another thing to research for someone. Absolutely. <laughs> more interested in marketing. Um, <laughs> the other thing, I don't know what a grackle is.
2: Oh, a grackle. Yeah, so they're, um, they're a blackbird. I don't know, well, I don't know exactly like where they fit in, you know, bird phylogeny or anything mm-hmm. like that, but they're a blackbird um, with these really long, beautiful tails Um, and they're, they're black, but they've got this kind of bluish sheen on them. And actually people really don't like them because they make a really obnoxious kind of crow-like cawing sound. I think they're super cool. They are clearly very, very smart and have all kinds of bizarre behaviors. They'll kind of like flip their heads over backwards and puff up and make these bizarre noises and, you know, who knows what's going on. Um, I did hear an anecdotal theory that they were, um, prized by the Aztecs. I don't know if this is true or not, um, because they like to congregate in open spaces, which would be uh, a feature of Aztec architecture, Mm -hmm. and also because their tails are so long and beautiful, so they would use the tails for something. I'm not sure. I'm not sure the details about that, but that is a theory that I heard when I was living there.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you started in Austin doing your research uh, for your dissertation. How did you choose bats for an ethnomusicology (laughs) dissertation? Yeah, so it's a really, it's actually a really complicated
2: question. And I think I usually give sort of a cagey answer, but I think it is a really important issue to get into, to be perfectly frank. Um, And the reason for that is while it seems like it diverges a lot from the types of Things that we think about in ethnomusicology, it really doesn't. So when I backtrack some personal history, um, so when I first went to Austin, I was thinking that I wanted to write about Cuban protest music. So I went there specifically to study with Robin Moore, who has done a lot of research on things like that, and I was super excited. Um, and then I got there, and we were having all of these conversations in seminar about um, positionality and colonialism in our field, and you know the types of research that we do, and how are we you know, complicit in some problematic things. Um, and I started thinking about it and I said, well, okay, maybe this is a really cool topic, but maybe I'm not the right person to write it. Maybe I need to make, make space for somebody else to write this paper. Um, and I started trying to think about if I were going to write an ethnography about, um, groups that I am a member of, what would that look like? And, Most of the kind of classic demographic groups that I could slot myself into, I felt really just didn't represent my lived experience. And I think there's a lot of complicated reasons for that, that I don't really want to get into at the moment. But um, most most of the frames that I felt like I could apply to myself using techniques that we already have in ethnomusicology just didn't seem like they quite fit. So I said, okay, if I was going to come up with a different frame based on what I actually experienced, what would that be? Um, And one of the things I ended up coming up with was the fact that I um, have a science background. So I have a bachelor's degree in science. My parents are science people. Many of my friends are scientists, things like that. And it's something that um, coming into ethnomusicology, I found I had a lot of ideological clashes with people when I first started. I think I I have grown and learned since then. Um, But it was very noticeable when I first got into the field And I think um, it's important to think about the way that science functions in the same way that other cultures function. So we don't usually think of science as a culture, but it has a lot of the same things that we typically associate with culture. So there's shared language, there are shared networks of people, there are shared rituals, there are shared mythologies, all of these different things. Um, And I think there have been some ethnomusicological attempts to engage with science that have not taken the time to really um, understand all of those nuances of scientific culture in the same way that they might if we were going to a different country to study something. So what I started out trying to do was basically an ethnography of science where I was like, I'm going to talk to scientists and I'm going to go to laboratories and I'm going to read scientific papers and take them as primary sources and I'm going to do this kind of like cultural study of science. And I did a little bit of that. Um, I would like to do more of that in the future, but that did not not end up being, you know, kind of the full breadth of the paper. But through doing that um, and also living in Austin where I was observing all this bat stuff. Um, I ended up. Uh, I worked with some local conservation groups and things like that. I did visit some labs of bat biologists and things like that, um, and just kind of follow following the bunny trails of all of those different things. I ended up at this sort of weird bat music thing. So yeah. Uh, so on one hand, you know, it is sort of bizarre for ethnomusicology, but on the other hand, it really does come from. Um, an effort to think about the ways that we generate topics for study. So it's not just, yeah, (laughs) it's not just about the bats and about the science and stuff like that, but thinking about who we are as individuals and our positionality and using that, not just as our perspective on a topic, but how we actually develop topics. Right.
0: And how we can engage with them and like, yeah, exactly. What we can say that we feel. That we can say, I guess. Yeah, um, exactly. So Yeah, that entire meandering pathway sounds so familiar mm-hmm. as a current PhD student who has very much done the meandering pathway in the last few years. Yeah.
2: Yeah, well, uh, I, think it's, I think it's important. I think sometimes we come into programs and we're expected to know what we want and what we think about things. And it's a good idea to come into the program, like, with some thoughts, I think. But I think that it is also important to sort of honor that meandering path as a learning process, right? I mean, you would hope you would hope that your ideas and the things that are important to you when you come into the PhD program and when you leave the PhD program are different because that means you learn something over the process. I
0: could go on further about that, but that's probably a <laughs> <obviously> whole nother <laughs> conversation.
2: Maybe not when we're recording.
0: <laughs> um, okay, so how did this, Scientific journey into bats and kind of the immersion in a bat city in the bat city lead to your research of bats as representative of racial othering
2: yeah, so I'm looking at my notes <laughs> <laughs> What did I say? yeah, I guess I would say i don't have a i don't have a super fabulous answer to that question to be honest with you, but I think um. I believe really strongly in letting what you observe in the field dictate what your ultimate theory is. Um, so mm-hmm. kind, of, kind of along the lines of what we were just saying, I think sometimes we have a tendency to say, here's a cool theory and I wanna explore that theory. And then we try to retrofit things that we see in order to fit that theory. And I am very, very anti that approach. So um, some of the things regarding racial othering are just derived from conversations that I had with various people in Austin, um, things that I read, um, stuff like that. So basically it, it comes from the way that people were talking about their relationships to the animals more than anything else.
0: Yeah. And to link back to your talk, some of the art depictions on the album covers even.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So that, that's a great one. The Bat City Surfers, which was a group that I interviewed and observed and, you know, talked with whatever, uh, for my dissertation there, um, first album was titled Fear of a Bat Planet. And it's very funny because they're very vehemently like, oh yeah, you know, it's not a social critique, right? It's just meant to be humor or something like that. Then I wrote this piece and I showed it to them and they're like, oh yeah, no, exactly. That's exactly what we meant. (laughs) So it's like, okay, good.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that meeting of the academic with what people are thinking and they're like, oh, we, we do have common thoughts. We're just working on finding the common language. I guess. I don't know.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think sometimes what people think you mean when you say, oh, do you have a social critique? It's not exactly what we mean by that. So I think they, yeah, some some mismatch in language in that way also.
0: In the same vein, in the metaphors of animals being used to dehumanize people through racial othering, through just, yeah, dehumanization through connection with animals, have you noticed a particular lean of what types of animals. You mentioned bats in your talk and I was wondering if that happened more with nocturnal animals because they're maybe less known to a lot of people. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a really interesting question because
2: I think some some people would say that we have sort of pre-existing relationships with animals and plants and other species in our environment and those kind of dictate the way that we engage with culture. And I would actually disagree with that. I think that we have our relationships with non-human species are also culturally determined. Right. So I think that it, it depends it depends on who and where and in what situation um, that we relate to certain types of animals, right? So so bats as being, you know, other or weird or whatever is as much culturally determined as our relationships with marginalized peoples, right? If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I, feel like that, I didn't say that super clearly. Hopefully, hopefully you get where I'm going with that. Um, so I don't know that I think that there is a particular type of animal that is sort of predetermined as something that we can use to metaphorize our relationships with other people. I think there are parallel ways that we construct those two figures socially, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, that does make sense. Do you have any ideas of how to address like these parallel characterizations of um, people, non-human species, and like the racial othering that's done? Do you have any ideas of how we can maybe not address that, but tweak uh, our perceptions of the connections that have been made so far?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, that's a, I think that's an interesting question. And when you asked me that, I had not really been thinking in that way about kind of a potential activist bent for this kind of research. Um, I will say that a big aspect of bat conservation has been trying to revise these narratives. So that's a big thing that is done. Um, within conservation organizations. And that's less geared towards the um, parallels with racial others than it is with the sort of material effects that some of these stereotypes can have on bat populations. So the claim is that because people think bats are scary, they think they're ridden with disease, they think, you know, they're all blood sucking monsters or whatever, they, in, in truth, there are a lot of cases where people will go and, you know, torch entire caves of bats or um, when they, if they find them in their house, they'll poison them or things like that. And that is, you know, not only unfortunate for the individual bats who do not need to lose their lives. um, But also just because bat populations are very threatened right now for a lot of different reasons, particularly in the United States, but definitely definitely worldwide um, they're really suffering so if we can remove that you know extra human stressor on their populations that's ultimately a good thing so one of the ways that um, conservation, groups try to do that I haven't seen as much with sound and music I think there is a little bit of that mostly geared towards children so there's a lot of like kids songs about bats meant to be educational I think the idea is then they sort of indoctrinate them into this bats are cool mentality and then they'll go be adults and you know
0: yeah I definitely remember this dilemma as a kid where I found bats really cool I had this little notebook of just various animal species And I thought the bat picture and just learning about them was super cool. And then being told, no, bats are dangerous. Don't touch one if you see them. And so I definitely had that dilemma of, okay, I don't know how to respond to this thing that I think is really cool, but I've been told is not good.
2: Yeah, yeah. I
0: think Honestly, I think there
2: does continue to be a little bit of a dilemma, even with these efforts to, honestly, a lot of times it's an effort to humanize bats. So, you know, um, kind of anthropomorphic depictions of bats in children's literature and songs and things like that. Um, But I think there does continue to be a tension because on one hand, you're absolutely right. It's like, oh, you know, they're great and they're cute and, you know, they look like puppies or whatever. Um, But on the other hand, there is still, you know, don't pick them up, right? It is a wild animal you know, yada, yada, yada. Um, And I think that is complicated, even if we, even if we know that they are not more likely to carry rabies than other animals, anything like that, there is still um, kind of a complicated relationship there. Um, But what I was going to say is um, kind of beyond children's songs and things like that, the conservation um, groups have focused a lot on visual um, attempts to sort of humanize bats. So one of the most famous bat conservationists, Merlin Tuttle, who founded Bat Conservation International, is a really renowned photographer. Um, And one of his claims is that in the past, whenever you saw a photograph of a bat, it was very stressed in its environment because it was you know, grabbed by someone or a photo, you know, there's a big flash in its face or something like that. So it was like looking scared, burying its teeth. So we had this idea that they're really scary. Um, so what he would do is he would take bats, um, I believe he took them out of the field most of the time, and he would kind of, uh, he would feed them and kind of get them used to him before he would take their photographs. So a lot of times if you see beautiful pictures of bats, um, uh, eating fruit or drinking pollen from a flower or something like that, where they just look sleek and beautiful, a lot of those are his photographs because he... Um, had, he developed some techniques for photographing them that prior to that time were not particularly common and depended on a really in-depth knowledge of the individual species and how to work with animals and things like that.
0: Yeah, uh, that part caught me because, yes, I did read your paper, like, previous to (laughs) this. (laughs) I was like, I need to know what you're talking about a little bit more. I I had to reread it too. I was like, what did I say? (laughs) But one of the things that I had pulled out as kind of an interesting part was when you were talking about Tuttle and uh, his approach to photography, and you kind of, you compared it to doing field work in anthropology as well. Oh, did I? Yeah. Um, (laughs) uh, Let me see. Notwithstanding complex theories about the image itself, Tuttle redefined those relationships by taking the time to get to know bat behaviors before photographing them, much as anthropologists are now expected to do f- fieldwork to try to understand the cultures that interest them before depicting them. And yeah, I, I honestly had never thought about, prior to the semester, had never thought about doing fieldwork with non-human species. Mm, yeah. Because I've definitely been focused on, okay, Coming from a music background, wanting to focus on the people that make the music rather than the notes and rhythms themselves, I hadn't widened that out to non-human ideas. Um, and I'm kind of, what was your experience doing fieldwork in Austin to try and do this research?
2: Yeah, so I think it's a. This is also a very complicated issue that I think I don't. I don't really have. Answer to, right? As much as anyone can have the answer, right? Um, so I think a lot of people, including probably Tuttle and other conservationists, would say that there is sort of a bat culture that you could acclimate to and study in the same way that you would study in, in an anthropological way. And I had forgotten that I made this parallel in um, that paper. Um, I think my opinion is that because there is some information that we just cannot get from nonverbal species that we can get from humans who are verbal. Um, I think that there are a lot of problems with that approach in particular. What I do think we can study, and what I think is particularly interesting is the way that people think about doing that, if that makes any sense. So rather than saying, I'm going to study bat culture, I'm going to say, I study the way that people think about bat culture that makes any sense. So it's sort Mm -hmm. of like a complex, a a complex of humans and bats that make up this bat culture, which I think is one of the reasons why this idea, the bat city idea is particularly interesting to me, and particularly the bat people idea. So I believe I titled something, something I wrote, I titled (laughs) bat people, particularly because I think the human determination of the species subjectivity and the species culture is a really important part of the issue, right? So I think there are some folks who are beginning to think through, you know, bat sounds themselves as musical and bat culture stuff like that. I I think that's very cool, but for me a little bit too complicated right now. So like I said, I'm I'm interested in the way that humans determine those relationships and how they define yes, this is a bat culture or not, or yes, this is a bat song or not. That's a big thing that gets thrown around in science is bat songs. Um, so why is that? Why is that song? Why Why are people making those kind of delimit- delimitations?
0: Mm-hmm. That makes sense? Yes. I also haven't taken a science class, so. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> in like probably 10 years. So I'm trying to follow. I'm trying to think of this from a like scientific point of view, despite not having yeah. to background to do that. But no, that does make sense. Um,
2: so just to, just to clarify a little bit more, and this is something that I started to deal with in my dissertation, but I think merits much more um, in-depth thought. And it's a little bit more in line with some of the other multi-species work that has come out. Recently, So Rachel Mundy's work with birds particularly, I think, deals with some of these issues. Um, but with bats, so they make these vocalizations, and scientists differentiate between what they call singing vocalizations and calling vocalizations. And okay. the way that they do that is mostly kind of structurally based. So they listen to the sounds, and they kind of divide them based on, you know, how complex is it? you know, how, you know, how many different pitches, whatever, how long is it? Um, and based on function, which they are making some assumptions as to the function, again, because they cannot interview, interview the bat and say, what did you mean by this? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what interests me is why are they making that distinction? So what does that say about the way that scientists themselves understand musicality, um brains frankly it has a lot of stuff to do with brains so how are scientists understanding those cultural elements rather than making a claim myself like this is music therefore I'm going to study it as if it's music
0: that is kind of getting along the lines of something I want to study um because I'm super interested in music cognition oh yeah from an ethnomusicological perspective yeah uh because they don't really agree <laughs> um, and so, yeah, how, I want to, can you please do more research so I can read on, on it? <laughs> <On, Yes>. i <I'm laughs> on it. Thanks. <laughs> um, so, alongside that, you gave me uh, three recordings of I bat did. sounds. Uh,
1: Two, three. Oh, a little
0: brown my apparently.
2: Yeah, still pretty quiet, but
0: hopefully, hopefully we can hear a little bit of that. I am curious how you got bat sounds recorded.
2: Yes, I brought a thing, which I know that our listeners will not be able to see, but I will show it to you and I will describe it. So, I used this handy device which is known as a bat detector this is a very very inexpensive um version that just plugs into your iphone actually like so so it's about what i'm holding is about uh i don't know an inch and a half by two inches long red piece of plastic that plugs into the bottom of my phone um and basically it's an uh just an ultrasonic microphone so um see if i can open it and it's got an a accompanying app Super easy to use. Yeah, and I'm, I will just hold it up to show you. You'll just hear the people will just hear some static, basically. But it just gives a spectrogram. Um, it's just an ultrasonic microphone that pitch shifts the sounds into the audible range. So, kind of classic is if I wiggle my fingers, makes a little scratchy noise, and we can just kind of see that. So that's what I use. There's a lot. M- there are much nicer. Um, kind of high-tech versions of this that you would use, depending on what you're gonna use it for. This is mostly used, there's a lot of efforts to do what are called citizen science projects right now, particularly with bats, but a lot of different animals and other conservation issues. So this, um, I think, is mostly used for what we'd call acoustic monitoring. So there's a lot of, as I said, um, because bat populations are declining pretty severely in the United States and across the world, there has been a lot of effort to get people to survey bats kind of in their neighborhoods or their houses, or, you know, if they have a bat box to do surveying there. So the recordings I gave you were from this summer um, in Madison, Wisconsin, we were doing a survey um put together by the department of natural resources they call it the great wisconsin bat count and basically um, what you're expected to do is you'll go somewhere where there is a known bat roost if you have a bat box you do at your house if you don't know one they can tell you where to go and you just you sit there at dusk and you look up at the bat box and you watch them drop out out of the bat box and fly off into the night sky and just count them. Um, So I did a recording just because I had the recording device and I thought it was cool and interesting, Um, but they also use these for a different type of survey, like I said, called acoustic monitoring, where you would like walk a transept, um, excuse me, transect, where you would just walk a certain path in the evening at a set time of day and the recorder would catch however many bat calls, it would catch, and then you would send that data to the government also to keep keep track of the bat populations in the state. There's also some effort to do this on a more national level. I don't know a lot of details about that yet. I've only recently heard about it, but it's called the North American Bat Monitoring Project. Um, It's basically the same idea where they kind of divide the country into a huge grid and basically ask people to just go out in their yard and do some recordings and stuff like that. So that 's what it is, and i I have not used the recordings in my own research to analyze as sounds in that way. I mean, I think someone could do that potentially, but i'm sort of more interested in the underlying thinking behind using this as a way of engaging with sound, so like I showed you on the app, there is a big um, spectrogram, so why are we what why are we using a spectrogram to understand this sound rather than you know an auditory analysis, things like that. Um, yeah, and just sort of the underlying assumptions made about sound and classifications of sound and those sorts of things.
0: Yeah, you got ahead of me because my very next question was going to be about how that sound could be used as part of like sound studies.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: I wish I had known about this when I was five-year-old, seven-year-old, me would have had a field day.
2: Yeah, there's um, other, there are, have been some really interesting um, musical engagements with these kind of recordings. So one that um, my students were exposed to earlier this time, there's a gentleman out of Indianapolis, Stuart Hyatt, who has recently made some recordings of the Indiana bat, which is endangered here in Indiana. Um, and then he commissioned various musicians to make some different um sound collages basically with the sounds. And there's actually, there's a number of different people who have done similar things. In Austin, um, several years ago, somebody did a piece, I think it was commissioned by Bacardi, where they mapped, I guess it wasn't bat recordings, but they mapped the physical movements of the Congress Avenue Bridge bat colony onto a grid. And the grid would like trigger different sonic events depending on how the bats moved. Um, There's somebody in England who has used uh, bat recordings to do like techno beats and things like that. So there's a lot of kind of interesting engagements with those recordings on a musical level as well.
0: See, When you talked about bats and Music City kind of coming together, that's what I imagined Uh, more than tourist advertisement and visual representations like at the Trader Joe's so I'm kind of glad I am glad to hear that's happening.
2: Yeah there's some of it there's some of it in Austin but I think it it does remain very much associated with tourism so most mm-hmm. of the people who are using that stuff in their music are doing it with a particularly with a particular eye to identifying themselves as Austinite um which I think has a lot of a lot of things to do with tourism in a lot of cases, so there are a bunch of different bands that throw Bat City into their title. The extent to which that they engage with bat imagery or bat sounds tends to really vary. One group that I think I talked about in the music cultures article is actually it's a group of librarians. they are called Echo in the Bats, and they dress up like bats, yeah, <laughs> and they've they've kind of changed the lyrics to um. Existing rock songs, mostly to be about children's books, some of them bat themed children's books, some of them not bat themed. So there is some of that. And then there's also people who will just say, like, we're the Bat City so and so. And then they're just a regular band.
0: So different ways of connecting with the icon. Yeah. There's a lot more I would love to talk to you about, but I know we're reaching the end of our a lot of time. At another conversation, I would love to talk to you about bats and environmental research, which we kind of touched on with the um, projects. And then I also want to talk to you about Batfest. Oh yeah. Also, because I was reading that and I was really curious what that much sound near the bat colony, what impact that has on the bat colony, because I can't imagine that's great for a species that depends so much on sound.
2: Absolutely. And I think that's one of the issues with the bat fest. So on one hand, there, there's a, actually a huge, there there are that related festivals kind of across the country that I think were originally modeled off of some of the things done in Austin that are meant to raise awareness. There's activities for kids. There's usually, you know, some music, things like that. So the idea of having a bat, fest. actually there's even, there's even one here in Indiana. I think it is canceled this year, but there, um, the idea of having an educational bat fest is huge. The one in Austin, I believe when it started, um, Did work directly with the conservation groups, and I think it was probably a bit smaller at that time Since then um, it's really gotten Dissociated from the conservation work and I think most of the conservationists are pretty critical of it actually exactly for the reason that you're stating So it does bring a huge group of people directly on top of the Congress Avenue bridge. There's music. There's all kinds of stuff um, that I think probably do have a negative impact on the bats. The counter argument that some people would make is that because they are living in an urban space, they're under a bridge that cars go over constantly all day. There's other music festivals that happen in that area all the time. Um, So I think some people would maybe argue that, you know, they're not in this pristine, sonic, silent environment anyway. Um, I I think probably some more quantitative research would need to be done to actually assess the impact of it overall. I just think it's a bit, I think it's a bit weird because you can go down to the bridge and watch them any day of the week that they're there, like they, they are always going out to eat food because they need to do that. Um, But the bat fest kind of monetizes it in a very weird way. So you have like they block off the bridge and you have to pay money to get a ticket. And the big event is the bats like leaving the bridge to go feed. Um, So I think there's some bizarre, I don't know, politics happening there as well.
0: Well, it's another on my list of festivals to go check out. (laughs) which is getting longer by the day. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you do stuff with festivals, right? Yeah. Okay, so actual final question. Okay, final question. Most memorable fieldwork experience related to
2: anything we've talked about? Related to anything we've talked about, oh gosh. But I think the first one that occurs to me actually did come up in the Q&A from the colloquium slash dirt talk a couple weeks ago, which was um, visiting Bracken Cave, which is um, it's just outside of San Antonio so maybe an hour and a half from Austin. It's a cave that is on a piece of land owned by the Nature Conservancy and it has a colony I believe I always hear different numbers but we'll, we'll go with the biggest one for for dramatic impact but um, as many as 20 million bats when at its peak which is let me tell you that is an experience to watch um, watch them going out to feed in the evening so it is like uh, someone in the Q&A said there are so many of them that they show up at on weather radar so people are like oh it's a storm coming nope it's just the bass um, and so what happens that you have to get kind of a special permission from the conservation group to get to go go see it because they want to keep the bats as safe as they possibly can. So you'll go and you'll sit a little bit a ways away from the mouth of the cave before dusk. And then they'll start gradually coming out in this kind of circular motion. And then they'll gather more and more speed at the mouth of the cave before finally kind of pouring out in this shape. They call it a batnado. And I think that is absolutely the perfect description of what that looks like. I actually have like giant photographs of this all around my house because it's so cool. And they just, I I forget the amount of time that it takes for them to come out, but they'll start um, in the summer. In the summer, it's before dark, depending on when you go. Sometimes it's, it's after dark. But I think, you know, a couple of hours at least for them to pour all the way out of the cave. The other cool thing is sometimes they will let you stay overnight so you can wake up early in the morning to hear them come back. And that's almost even cooler because... It's, it's, it's still dark outside, so you go and sit at the mouth of the cave, and you really can't see anything. Um, but then all of a sudden, you'll just hear these sounds all around you of the bats swooping back into the cave. Um, so they, there's a swooping noise, and then when they get to the close to the cave, they pop their wings out to kind of break. So there's kind of a swooping and popping noise coming all around you. You can't see anything. It's very, very cool.
1: is an official production of the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University. Produced by David McDonald and Amanda Luke. Music by Pagliacci and some other clowns. Engineered by Amanda Luke. Questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes? Leave us a message at 812-855-0396. If you haven't already, please subscribe to SoundLore on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded.